0: You know, Frege is wrestling with something when he writes these long paragraphs. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, Gottlob Frege and the language of reason.
1: Identity gives rise to challenging questions which are not altogether easy to answer. Is it a relation, a relation between objects or between names or signs of objects?
2: How much does language influence which thoughts we can think?
0: Logic helps us think clearly but can it also give us insights into the world? What if there were
2: rules that you could follow and always reason correctly?
0: Could there be a way of speaking that taps into deep philosophical insights about the nature of reality? Could there ever be a language that's free from all ambiguity? Our guest is host emeritus John Perry, author of Regas Detour, an essay on meaning, reference, and truth and the language of reason. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. What if we created the perfect logical language? Would we gain insights about mathematics? Could we find deep connections between ideas just by studying the grammar of sentences?
2: Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything.
0: Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy.
2: And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you via the Studio San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative.
2: Today, we're thinking about Frege and the Language of Reason.
0: Oh yeah, Gottlob Frege, the German philosopher from the turn of the 20th century. Didn't he invent a new system of logic or something?
2: Yeah, exactly. He developed rigorous standards for definitions. Uh, He came up with a whole new way of thinking about numbers and he even redefined how we understand mathematical proof.
0: Okay, that's interesting. But why did Frege need to do that? I mean, mathematicians have been proving things for centuries, the Greeks had geometry, the Islamic empire had algebra, the Chinese mathematicians of the Han dynasty had those really sophisticated methods for calculating pi. All that was great,
2: but their arguments just didn't look very much like the rigorous proofs we have today. I mean, yeah, they proved a lot of cool things and their calculations mostly worked, but no one had a comprehensive way of checking whether they worked.
0: So no one knew how to check proofs until the 19th century?
2: Well, they did, but Frege was systematic about it. He had rules that you could use to check a proof every step of the way. And if you followed all the rules, you could be absolutely certain that you hadn't made any mistakes.
0: Okay, so Frege had a system for checking proofs, but, but okay, riddle me this, Ray, how did he check his own system? Or did he use his own rules? I mean, that'd be like trying to figure out if your thermometer is accurate by using your thermometer. Okay, yeah, that
2: is a fair point. System turned out not to have been perfect, and people did find out that one of his axioms leads to contradictions.
0: Wait, wait, wait. So this guy revolutionized math by adding contradictions? How's that supposed to be an improvement? Okay, okay, so the details weren't perfect. The ideas were still good.
2: I mean, having some system of rules is important, even if Frego was wrong about exactly which ones. And he also just gave us a really useful language to use for making logical
0: arguments. But didn't Aristotle already have a language for making logical arguments? Yeah, Fido was a dog... All dogs are mammals, therefore Fido is a mammal. That's your good old-fashioned syllogism right there.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, Aristotle had syllogisms, but Frege's system was so much better. Like, look, lots of arguments are valid, but you just can't express them with syllogisms. Like, here's one. So, somebody has been stealing chocolate chip cookies in the studio. Ray does not like chocolate chip cookies. The thief obviously does like chocolate chip cookies. Therefore, Ray is not the thief.
0: Yeah, a likely story. Maybe Ray has a friend who likes chocolate chip cookies.
2: <laughs> nice try, but it isn't me. <laughs> and that's what Frege helps us understand, that I'm innocent.
0: Oh, okay. So, okay, humor me, Ray. How does Frege help us prove your innocence?
2: We had this really helpful theory of the equals sign. So if Ray equals the thief, then anything that's true about Ray has to be true about the thief, too. But since the thief likes cookies, and, and I don't, I'm not the thief.
0: All right, I, I believe you. <laughs> It must be somebody else. And, and all of this works great for cookie thieves. But, but does it really work as a general principle, Ray? I mean, take Lois Lane and Superman, right? Lois Lane thinks Superman is really cool. Superman equals Clark Kent. But Lois Lane does not think Clark Kent is really cool. So how would Frege explain that? Okay, that, yeah, that is a problem.
2: But, but Frege had stuff to say about it. I'm hoping our guest will be able to explain his solution. It's our old friend John Perry, who wrote a book about Frege after he retired from This show.
0: Well, one thing I want John to explain is how Frege would make sense of real-world confusions. I mean, never mind Lois Lane and Superman. What about everyday cases of mistaken identity?
2: Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Josh. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly... ...to explore how identity confusion plays out in real life. She files this report. <phone rings>
1: Before we begin our saga of stolen identity, would you believe the music you're hearing is by an experimental band named Frega?
2: Part of music, of language itself, is what attracted us to the philosopher.
1: Raphael Durand plays the keyboard. He says he was reading Frega's Sense and Reference.
2: At the beginning of the band, we were very inspired by that and we started to look for these truths that were just above our subjectivity, like extra subjective truths within music. For example, the octave, you know, uh, the first C note, middle C note, how it relates to the next one. It's not simply a matter of subjectivity. It's not uh, like arbitrarily you Call this one C and this one C an octave above. It has a, a kind of a scientific relationship, like a, a like a degree
0: of undisputable truth.
1: Now about those stolen identities.
3: You'd see depictions of a dangerous person wearing a tan trench coat and and a hat hiding in the bushes.
1: Axton Betts Hamilton grew up in the 80s when they taught ideas like stranger danger.
3: You know, in my 11-year-old mind, that's what I thought an identity thief looked like.
1: Axton is a professor of consumer affairs at South Dakota State University. She grew up in a small rural community in Indiana called Portland.
3: You know, I grew up surrounded by cornfields and we had animals
1: and, you know, pretty typical rural Indiana life. But then unusual things started happening. Her grandfather passed away when she was 11, and her family's mail went missing.
3: Our mail was delivered to a large yellow metal mailbox out by the road, and my parents just thought, oh, somebody's driving by and stealing the mail.
1: The personal information in their mail was used to obtain credit cards, bank accounts and commit utilities fraud. Axton's mom drafted a list of suspects, family members who seemed to be spending more than their means.
3: It seemed reasonable and it seemed like there were all of these people in our lives that just weren't behaving in ways that they should. And somehow all of
1: these people were just surrounding us. Axton's mom worked in the financial industry and had gone to college, so she and her dad trusted her to have the answers. This was before credit freezes and fraud alerts, so there weren't a whole lot of solutions. The family just withdrew and stopped going into people's homes or family gatherings.
3: The world pretty much became me, mom, and dad.
1: By the time Axton was 19, she learned her credit score was in the second lowest percentile in the nation. It affected my
3: ability to obtain Utility services, so, you know, basic things like electricity and water, phone service, and things like that.
1: Axton decided to study identity theft in graduate school because she wanted to address the lack of support and understanding she experienced as a victim. She says research shows that parents are the most common perpetrators of identity theft, but that didn't enter her mind as a possibility until February 2013. It was 13 days after her mom had died from leukemia.
3: My dad was in an outbuilding on their property and was going through an old file box of mom's and he calls me and he's just livid at me for running a credit card over limit in 2001. I said, dad, what credit card is it? They said, well, it's First USA. I said, well, dad, that's one of the credit cards that was taken out in my name as part of the identity theft. What's mom doing with that?
1: Her dad explained the statement was there along with Axton's birth certificate. And that's when Axton's blood ran cold. She understood her mom was the person who had stolen their identities. She says the process of grieving her mom's death stopped there.
3: The best way I can explain it is how can you grieve for somebody that you clearly didn't know? And it's very clear that there were several dimensions to mom that I didn't know and that clearly dad didn't know either. I'm not sure anybody really knew who my
1: mom. Axton later wrote a book about identity theft titled The Less People Know About Us. She says there is an irony here. Her own identity now revolves around studying the crimes her mom committed. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed.
0: You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.